if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, and if you have a little trouble finding 1 Kings, do not be embarrassed. There is a table of contents in the front of the Bible that is there for your help. Don't be embarrassed. I remember as a child not knowing where an Old Testament book of the Bible was, and I was embarrassed that someone would see me peeking at the table of contents. It's there for a reason. Sometimes these Old Testament books are a little hard to find. So find 1 Kings chapter 19, and if you have one of these sermon inserts, pull that out as it will help us this morning. As you're finding 1 Kings 19, I need to just to set a record straight briefly. Uh, as I've been visiting with folks after each of the services the last few weeks, I keep getting this question, do you eat a lot? What question is that? Because it seems as though every one of the messages I have preached though thus far have been about food. So the only conclusion is you must eat a lot. Well, let me just set this record straight once more. We're in a series called The Chef's Table. It's a whole series about food. We're going to talk about this for a while. It's a metaphor that we're using from the Bible that shows how God is inviting us to be at his table and inviting us into a relationship. And so while, yes, I do like to eat, and yes, I have had sermons about mashed potatoes, hot bread, butter, the whole thing, there's going to be a few more of those in the days ahead. But today, we're not talking about food specifically, but more about food delivery. Have you ever heard of the organization called Meals on Wheels? Anybody heard of that organization? Meals on Wheels got its start in Great Britain in 1943. During the Second World War, families were experiencing the bombing raids of the Germans and an organization began in London to bring food to folks who couldn't get to the grocery or couldn't get help. Eventually, Meals on Wheels made its way across the pond to the United States and began here in Philadelphia in 1953. A social worker by the name of Margaret Toy began wanting to serve meals primarily to elderly homebound and shut-ins. In her first working years, Meals on Wheels had volunteers that were all high school students, teenagers. And they referred to these volunteers as platter angels. Isn't that an interesting name? Twice a day, platters would be put together. We don't even use that word very much to describe a meal. But a warm platter would be formed for the lunchtime meal and then a sandwich and some side items for the dinner meal. And these Platter angels would package them, ride on their bikes to the different places in Philadelphia and make deliveries. Now, Meals on Wheels is still active. It's still in uh, the United States, really across the United States. Uh, A more recent number from 2016 shared that Meals on Wheels served 218 million meals to two and a half million people a couple years ago. It was those platter angels 
that were making the deliveries to homebound, shut-in families, they couldn't help themselves. When a recipient of one of those meals was at their lowest point, just barely hanging on, an angel, a platter angel, would come and deliver some food. I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if maybe the name platter angel was derived from 1 Kings chapter 19, where another angel, a real angel, makes a delivery of food. And not to a homebound, not to a shut-in, not to someone in a war, but to someone who was at his lowest point. His name is Elijah. Let me set the stage for you just a moment so you can feel the full context of what's going on. In 1 Kings chapter 18, a famine has hit the land. Drought. King Ahab is on the throne and he is not a good king nor is he a godly king. He has allowed much evil to come through the land. And a lot of that has come from his co-conspirator Jezebel. She was an evil woman who sought to bring down the prophets of God. She wanted to totally eliminate the word of God being preached and communicated to the people. And she had killed hundreds of preachers and prophets. Elijah finds himself as the last remaining prophet. And Elijah challenges Jezebel and her prophets of Baal to this great demonstration of God's power. He calls them to Mount Carmel. And at Mount Carmel, some of you know this from 1 Kings 18, they set up two altars, one altar for Baal and one altar for God. And they sacrifice or bring two bulls and halves and they set each of the portions on each altar. And then Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to call upon their so-called gods. And they sing and they chant and they even begin to cut themselves. And nothing happens. And the Bible says Elijah starts taunting them, mocking them. Oh, is your God asleep? Is your God on vacation? Is your God away and can't hear your call? And then at the end of the day, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. God Almighty demonstrates his power in a miraculous way and that he burns up the entire offering, the entire sacrifice. God from fire from heaven sends forth his power. And Elijah, in retaliation to those prophets, begins eliminating them so that their word and their teaching would be no more. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to the site of Mount Carmel where this took place. And I have a little video of it I want to show you. And, and I need to prepare you. The wind was really, really thick and heavy that day. So there is a little wind noise, but at least you'll get to see the landscape and you'll see exactly where this took place from the Bible. If you would show that. Stand here on the, uh, on the top of Mount Carmel, great place that we read from First Kings, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You see here the Jezreel Valley, full spectrum.
the direction of Jerusalem, three miles away. Gorgeous color. According to the scripture, after Elijah has victory, the prophets of Baal run down this mountain pass and he slaughters them in defeat. Over 300 total. You can see a slight glimpse of this little path. This little path will be the Kishon Brook. And the Kishon Brook is the actual uh, location of the slaughter. This is what gives more of an authentic location for this site. Whereas some, I believe, Haifa, about 30 uh, or uh, several miles over on that particular direction, but this is more appropriate for the location the traditional site of Carmel. Alright, looking forward, we see the community of Nazareth right below the base of the hill there, Mount Tabor. Mount Gilboa on the other side through the, through the pass you also have the the valley again it was a windy day you lost some of my narration my land tour guide narration I wanted you to see that because I wanted you to feel this point Elijah is on literally a mountaintop He's at the highest point in his life. He is the victor. Evil had been defeated and the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 18 verse 46, the power of the Lord was on Elijah. And then comes the rain. The drought ends, rains come, clouds form, and Elijah is literally soaring high. Victory now showing itself in the fire and now in the rain and the elimination of the enemy. But what takes place next is what we see in 1 Kings 19 that is following the victory, following the triumph, following the miraculous demonstration of God's power is quite contrary to what our superhero tales usually have as their conclusion. Elijah does not ride off into the sunset. He runs for his life, afraid, terrified. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 through 9. The Bible says Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah becomes afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there but went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, 
Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him, and the angel told him, get up and eat. Then he took, looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then, on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. I want to give you a quick map of the message this morning. I just want to share three turns. First, how victory turns to fear, how fear turns to despair, and how despair turns to restoration and rejuvenation. Let's first look at how victory turns to fear. If you go back to verse 1, 2, and 3, it's quite a scene. Jezebel gets the report about her prophets. She has heard about the sacrifice that came down from heaven and now her vengeance and her hatred for Elijah is fueled. You see it there in verse one. It says that Ahab told her everything and how his, her prophets had been killed by the sword. So Jezebel, verse two, sent a messenger to Elijah. She doesn't even come with these words herself. She sends a messenger and the word the messenger brings is, you better watch out, buddy. I'm coming after you. If you have done what you have what they have said you've done, I'm going to take your life and do like you did to them. And verse 3 tells us that that message makes him afraid. And immediately he runs for his life. He runs. He turns And runs. He's trying to get out of Dodge. He's trying to hightail it out of there. He's heading for the hills as fast as he can because he doesn't want her to find him or to catch him or to kill him. Now, here's my question for us. Let me pose this for you. How does the conquering hero one minute become a coward the next? How does the victorious champion one minute become a chump the next? How does a man who just minutes, hours before, stood on a mountaintop, called upon the name of God, saw fire come from heaven, completely eliminate hundreds of others, see the rain clouds come in, see the rain pour down, how does that man now become terrified of a woman? How can you stand up to 300 men and be terrified of one woman? She must have been a tough lady. Uh, Some of the guys are giggling and nudging their wives because actually you are terrified of the woman you're seated next to. 300 men, nothing. Her, serious business. Now guys, be careful. Don't ever refer to your wife as your Jezebel. That would not go well with you. It's not a good name to give your spouse. 
But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Elijah, a prophet who had tremendous victory, who saw the mighty hand of God, who defeated his enemies, who was soaring at his highest point immediately the day after crumbles? And this is what I know. At times, victory can quickly turn to fear. Victory can turn to fear. There is this known experience that happens to many men and women who are very successful in their careers, very successful in their life, in their goals, in their achievements, that after a period of victory, they feel a period of defeat. They go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and it can come sometimes in a matter of days or even hours. Now, no one exactly knows why. Medical doctors say it has something to do with the chemicals in your brain. They always point to the chemicals in our brain. The adrenaline release, the dopamine, the endorphins, you're striving, you're working, you're, you're pushing, you're going all in, and that your brain is responding in all these chemical forms and fashions. And, and the psychiatrists and the psychologists will even say that when you're really giving everything you got, when you're really pushing yourself to the limit, it's feeling as of being alive. You're not dead, of course. You're doing something. But there's even this greater sense that runners who find themselves pushing themselves further and further and further get what they call a runner's high when they move themselves to that next stage in their distance or in their speed. Psychologists and doctors all know that there's something in the human spirit that when we really push ourselves and we really see victory, there can be this peak in our emotional status. But what comes after it most often is an enormous decline. Some of it's the chemicals. Some of it's the emotions. But I believe there's even something spiritually going on here. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. Well, I am a doctor, but I'm one of the ones that don't help you. <laughs> my dad told me that as soon as I got my doctorate. He said, you're one of those doctors that hurts people, doesn't help people. You hurt their brains, not hurt their brains. They help their brains. There's something spiritually going on here, friends, and I think it's important for us to know that sometimes when we're really, really pushing at our hardest, when we're really giving it everything we have, and let's say we experience a season of victory and triumph, there's a temptation, temptation, to think we did it all on our own. It was all by my strength, all by my power, all by my ability, my talents. And I'm not saying that God gives us fear because scripture teaches us, 2 Timothy 1.7, that God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. But it could be that if you experience a low after a high, it's maybe God bringing you back to a place of humility to recognize it wasn't on your own. It wasn't all by your power. It could be that God brought you through that victory because it was for His glory and you're starting to take some of it for yourselves. Elijah ran for his life. Victory had turned to fear. And the problem is it gets worse. 
fear turns to despair. Go back to verse 4. Verse 4 is actually a very tender verse, and it's one that I think many of us avoid. It's a little too honest, a little too vulnerable, a little too transparent. You have one of the great heroes of the Bible sitting now under a broom tree, and he's praying, and he's praying that he would die. Verse 4, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase, translates this verse this way. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to go to the grave. Elijah, if we were to diagnose him, would be having what we call suicidal tendencies, suicidal ideation. He doesn't want to live anymore. He wants his life to be over. Now, I believe scripture records a single prayer. Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. But you can imagine it was more than just a single verse, a single sentence in his prayer. This is probably just the high points of the prayer. He's probably groaning before the Lord, moaning before the Lord in words that cannot be uttered by the human language. He's done. He's finished. He's at his lowest. He's asking for his life to be done. The victory of the mountaintop has swelled to despair asking for death. And I just want to be sensitive. There may be some folks in this room that have prayed a similar prayer. Maybe you haven't prayed it personally, but you know someone who has. You've known someone that was this low. A loved one, a spouse, a child. A dear friend. Maybe you've been there. Where you just couldn't see light. You could only see dark. You couldn't see hope. You could only see death. I just want you to know. that Some of the greatest heroes of the Bible have been there too. And God is not afraid. Of you going to the lowest point. If you just step back, you see Elijah going there. But even generations before, Moses cried out to God in his weakest point of leadership. God, kill me so these people will live. Take my life. Jeremiah, who writes, obviously, the book of Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He also wrote the book of Lamentations. I encourage you to read Lamentations. It's of a man who is broken in half. With no hope. No optimism. Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, writes in his book called Ecclesiastes that everything is vanity and that his life is but a vapor, but a breath. He's completely distraught over the outlook of his life. And even King David, one of my heroes, that shepherd boy who becomes the giant slayer, who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart, he gets to the same place. I want you to 
Keep your finger there in 1 Kings 19, but find Psalm 18. Find Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, David writes about this place of desperation. Psalm 18, verse 4 and 5. David writes, The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. He's not optimistic here, friends. He's not hopeful in these verses. He's writing in this poem, in this poetry, that death is absolutely at his doorstep. He's wrapped up in it. He's roped up in it. He's entangled in it. There is nothing that's good but snares of death. They're facing him. But in the same psalm, we see David, his view of God, and that God is his only salvation from despair. Continue reading in verse 6 and 7. I love these verses. So I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to the Lord in my despair. I cried to my God from help for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Glory to God. He hears us in despair. We can't go low enough. We can't be far enough away that God doesn't hear us. The scripture says from his holy temple, God hears. Brothers and sisters, God hears us in despair. Elijah was praying for death. Aren't you glad God didn't answer that prayer? But instead, God heard a man who was broken, a man who was shattered, who had been at the mountaintop, now is in the wilderness and the valley, and he hears him and he ministers to him. This is the same thing that David wants to picture. In verse 7, he says, Then the earth shook and quaked, and the fountains of the mountains trembled, because they they shook because he burned with anger. God is about to do something on behalf of David. Look at verse 16, same psalm. And maybe you just need to do what I've done in my Bible. You need to circle every verb, underline every action of God. Because you might need this one day. Verse 16. And God reached down from on high and took hold of me. Oh, brothers and sisters, your God can grab you anywhere. The darkest pit, the most in most inhumane place, don't think God can't reach you there. He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep water. There's a movement here. Verse 17, he rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me for they were too strong for me. They comfort, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Verse 19, circle this. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That is your God. That is my God. And if you ever find your place, yourself in the pit of despair, be assured God can rescue you there. He can pull you out. He can bring you to a spacious place. Elijah wanted his life to be over. 
But God had another plan. He goes from victory to fear, fear to despair, but he finds himself one last turn. Despair turns to restoration and rejuvenation. Here's the platter angel connection. Turn back to 1 Kings 19. Verse 5 tells us that he lays down under a broom tree and suddenly an angel touches him. This is the hand of God reaching down to his lowest point, touching his body, touching his soul, touching his broken spirit. And the angel tells him, get up and eat. And he looks and there's some food there, a loaf of bread and a jug of water. And he eats it and he drinks it, but he lays down again and goes back to sleep. And the angel of the Lord returned a second time and touched him again and told him, get up and eat so that the journey or the journey will be too much. Any of you ever ordered a pizza, got it delivered, and then a few hours later said, I need another one of those. We don't do that very often, do we? Go to a restaurant, get some food, and a couple hours later, let's go on back and get that again. But there was a double delivery here, kind of like Meals on Wheels. How many meals did they deliver? Two. One at lunch, one in the evening. This angel delivers him food twice. And this is what I want to show you, verse 8. So he eats that second time, and this is what the scripture says. Then, on the strength from that food, what does he do? He walks 40 days and 40 nights. Are you ready for the conclusion? Let's land this ship. Are you ready? Thank you, brother. When God calls us to restoration and rejuvenation, he supplies for our needs. Elijah's not done. He's got a journey ahead of him, a 40-day walk, a 40-day journey ahead, and it's because God's got another purpose, another plan, another mission for him. And God, pulling us out of despair, pulling us out of fear, is not just so that we are stuck where we are. God has got a new place and a new mission and a new purpose for us to do. Friends, if you've ever been caught in the spiral of despair, guess what? If you're still here, God's got something for you to do. He's got some place for you to go. He's got some mission for you to take on. You might have been at the mountaintop. You might be in the valley, but God's not done if you're still alive. He's got some place else for you to go. He's got something else for you to do. If you really step back and you look at Elijah in this season, he goes from a mountain to a valley to a journey. And where does he end? At another mountain. And I would say to you, no matter where you are on that same path, maybe you're fighting, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're climbing, maybe you're in the season of victory, be aware what may follow could be a season of fear. And if you're in the pit, if you're in the wilderness, if you're broken, know that God can rescue you there. And he can set you on a new journey, a new mission with a new purpose. Victory turns to fear. Fear turns to despair. But praise be to God, despair can turn into restoration and rejuvenation for your new mission. Let's pray together.
I'm just going to ask you to be honest before the Lord and maybe evaluate where you are if in similar ways with Elijah. Maybe you're fighting, striving. Just remember it's God who is fighting for you. Maybe you're at the lowest point. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you feel like the ropes of death have wrapped around you. Be assured that God can pull you out. Maybe you just don't see yourself on another mission, another journey, another walk. Maybe you feel like all those days are gone. Be assured if you're still here, God has a mission for you. This morning, wherever you are in that path, maybe none of those places, pray that you would just recognize who God is, what He has done, what He's willing to do, and offer yourself unto Him. Father, let us pray. Whatever your Spirit has said today through your Word, I pray that we would respond appropriately in this time of invitation. Do now what only you can do. Speak and move hearts. In Jesus' name.